0: Chapter Eleven, Part One of The Swiss Family Robinson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Swiss Family Robinson by Johann R. Wies. Chapter Eleven, Part One. Now for the finishing up of this dirty job, cried I, merrily, as we all woke up next morning at daybreak and after the regular work was done, we commenced operations by raising a stand, or rough scaffold on which the tubs full of blubber were placed and heavily pressed, so that the purest and finest oil overflowed into vessels underneath. The blubber was afterward boiled in a cauldron over a fire kindled at some distance from our abode, and by skimming and straining through a coarse cloth, we succeeded in obtaining a large supply of excellent train oil, which, in casks and bags made of the intestines, was safely stowed away in the cellar, as the children called our roughest store-room. This day's work was far from agreeable, and the dreadful smell oppressed us all, more especially my poor wife, who, nevertheless, endured it with her accustomed good temper. Although she very urgently recommended that the new island should be the headquarters for another colony, where, said she, Any animals we leave would be safe from apes and other plunderers, and where you would find it so very convenient to boil whale blubber, strain train oil, and the like. This proposal met with hearty approval, especially from the boys, who were always charmed with any new plan, and they were eager to act upon it at once. But when I reminded them of the putrefying carcass which lay there, they confessed it would be better to allow wind and storms, birds and insects to do their work in purging the atmosphere, and reducing the whale to a skeleton, before we revisited the island. The idea of a rowing machine kept recurring to my brain. I determined to attempt to make one. I took an iron bar which, when laid across the middle of the boat, projected about a foot each way. I provided this bar in the middle with ribbed machinery, and at each end with a sort of nave in which, as in a cart-wheel, four flat spokes or paddles were fixed obliquely. These were intended to do the rower's part. Then the jack was arranged to act upon the machinery in the middle of the iron cross-bar in such a way that one of its strong cog-wheels bit firmly into the ribs, so that, when it was wound up, it caused the bar to revolve rapidly, of course turning with it the paddles fixed at either end, which consequently struck the water so as to propel the boat. Although this contrivance left much to be desired in the way of improvement, still when Fritz and I wound up the machinery, and went off on a trial trip across the bay, we splashed along at such a famous rate that the shores rang with the cheers and clapping of the whole family, delighted to behold what they considered my brilliant success. one wanted to go on board and take a cruise but as it was getting late I could not consent. A trip next day, however, was promised to Cape Disappointment, and the little settlement of Prospect Hill. This proposal satisfied everybody. The evening was spent in preparing the dresses, arms, and food, which would be required, and we retired early to rest. Intending to be out all day, the house was left in good order, and we departed on our expedition provided— among other things, with spades and mattocks, for I wished to get young coconut-trees and shrubs of different kinds, that, on our way back, we might land on Whale Island and begin our plantation there. We directed our course toward the opposite side of the bay. The sea was smooth, my rowing-machine performed its work easily, and, leaving Safety Bay and Shark Island behind us, we enjoyed at our ease the panorama of all the coast scenery. Landing near Prospect Hill, we moored the boat, and walked through the woods to our little farm, obtaining some fresh coconuts, as well as young plants, on the way. Before coming in sight of the cottage at the farm, we heard the cocks crow and I experienced a sudden rush of emotion as the sound recalled, in a degree painfully vivid, the recollection of many a ride and walk at home, when we would be greeted by just such familiar sounds as we approached some kind friend's house. Here, but for the unconscious animals, utter solitude and silence prevailed, and I with my dear family, whose visit would have been hailed with delight in so many homes, advanced unnoticed to this lonely cottage. So long had been our absence that our arrival created a perfect panic. The original animals had forgotten us, and to their progeny, lambs, kids, and chickens, who had never seen the face of man, we seemed an army of fierce foes. The boys found it impossible to milk the goats, until, by the use of the lasso, they captured them one after the other, bound their legs, then giving them salt to lick, they soon obtained a supply of excellent milk, which was poured from the coconut shells they used into calabash flasks, so that we could take with us what was not required at dinner.' The fowls were enticed by handfuls of grain and rice, and my wife caught as many as she wished for. We were by this time very ready for dinner, and the cold provisions we had with us were set forth, the chief dish consisting of the piece of whale's tongue, which, by the boy's desire, had been cooked with a special view to this entertainment. But woeful was the disappointment when the tongue was tasted. One after another with dismal face pronounced it horrid stuff, begged for some pickled herring to take away the taste of train oil, and willingly bestowed on fangs the cherished dainty. Fortunately there was a sufficient supply of other eatables, and the fresh delicious coconuts and goat's milk put everyone in good humour again. While the mother packed everything up, Fritz and I got some sugar-cane shoots, which I wished to plant, and then we returned to the shore and again embarked. Before returning to Whale Island I felt a strong wish to round Cape Disappointment and survey the coast immediately beyond, but the promontory maintained the character of its name and we found that a long sandbank, as well as hidden reefs and rocks, ran out a great way into the sea. Fritz espying breakers ahead we put about at once and, aided by a light breeze, directed our course toward Whale Island. On landing I began at once to plant the saplings we had brought. The boys assisted me for a while, but wearied somewhat of the occupation, and one after another went off in search of shells and coral, leaving their mother and me to finish the work. Presently Jack came back, shouting loudly, "'Father, mother, do come and look. There is an enormous skeleton lying here, the skeleton of some fearful great beast. A mammoth, I should think.' "'Why, Jack!' returned I, laughing. "'Have you forgot our old acquaintance, the whale? What else could it be?' "'Oh, no, father, it is not the whale. This thing has not fish-bones, but real, good, honest, huge, beast-bones. I don't know what can have become of the whale. Floated out to sea, most likely. This mammoth is ever so much bigger. Come and see.' As I was about to follow the boy, a voice from another direction suddenly cried, "'Father! Father! A great enormous turtle!' "'Please make haste. It is waddling back to the sea as hard as it can go, and we can't stop it.' This appeal being more pressing, as well as more important than Jack's, I snatched up an oar and hastened to their assistance. Sure enough a large turtle was scrambling quickly toward the water, and was within a few paces of it, although Ernest was valiantly holding on by one of its hind legs. I sprang down the bank, and— Making use of the oar as a lever, we succeeded with some difficulty in turning the creature on its back. It was a huge specimen, fully eight feet long, and being now quite helpless we left it sprawling, and went to inspect Jack's mammoth skeleton, which, of course, proved to be neither more nor less than that of the whale. I convinced him of the fact by pointing out the marks of our feet on the ground, and the broken jaws where we had hacked out the whalebone. What can have made you take up that fancy about a mammoth, my boy? Ernest put it into my head, father. He said there seemed to be the skeleton of an antediluvian monster there, so I ran to look closer, and I never thought of the whale when I saw no fish bones. I suppose Ernest was joking. Whales are generally considered as fishes by those little acquainted with the animal kingdom, but they belong to the class of mammals, which comprises man, the monkey tribes, the bats, the dogs and cats, all hoofed animals, whales and their allies, with other animals, the last on the list being the sloth. The name by which they are distinguished is derived from the Latin word mamma, a breast, and is given to them because all the species belonging to this class are furnished with a set of organs called the mammary glands, secreting the liquid known as milk, by which the young are nourished. The bones of the whale differ from those of animals, simply in being of a hollow construction, and filled with air, so as to render the carcass more buoyant. The bones of birds are also hollow, for the same reason, and in all this we see conspicuously the wisdom and goodness of the great Creator. "'What a marvellous structure it is, Father!' said Fritz. "'What a ponderous mass of bones! Can we not make use of any of them?' "'Nothing strikes me at this moment. "'We will leave them to bleach here yet a while, "'and perhaps by sawing them up afterward "'make a few chairs or a reading-desk for the museum. "'But now it is time to return home, "'bring the boat round to where the turtle awaits his fate, "'and we must settle how to deal with him.' "'It was soon decided that he must swim. "'I fastened the empty water-cask to a long line, "'one end of which was made fast to the bow of the boat,' the other carefully passed round the neck and forepaws of the creature, who was then lifted, so as to let him regain his feet. When he instantly made for the water, plunged in, the cask floated after him, and prevented his sinking. We were all on board in a moment, and the worthy fellow, after vainly attempting to dive, set himself diligently to swim right forward, towing us comfortably after him. I was ready to cut the line at the least appearance of danger, and kept him on the course for safety bay, by striking the water with a boat-hook, right or left, according as the turtle was disposed to turn too much one way or the other. The boys were delighted with the fun, and compared me to Neptune in his car, drawn by dolphins, and accompanied by amphitrite and attendant tritons. We landed safely at the usual place near Rockburg, and the turtle was condemned and executed soon afterward. The shell, which was quite eight feet long and three broad, was, when cleaned and prepared, to form a trough for the water supply at the cave, and the meat was carefully salted, and stored up for many a good and savoury meal. It had been my intention to bring a piece of land under cultivation before the next rainy season, to be sown with different sorts of grain, but many unforeseen circumstances had intervened to hinder this, and our animals, unaccustomed to the yoke, were not available for the plough. I therefore gave up the idea for the present, and applied myself, with Ernest's assistance, to completing the loom, which, although the workmanship was clumsy, I succeeded in making quite fit for use. I had fortunately in my younger days spent many hours in the workshops of weavers and other artisans, and therefore I understood more than might have been expected of their various crafts. Paste, or size, was required to smear over the threads, but we could not spare floor for such a purpose, and I used isinglass, which kept the warp moist perfectly well, and spared us the necessity of setting up the loom in a damp, uncomfortable place, which has often to be done to prevent the over-drying of the web. Of this isinglass I also made thin plates, to be used as window-panes, they were at least as transparent as horn, and when fixed deep in the rock and beyond the reach of rain, did good service in admitting light. Success encouraging me to persevere, I next began harness-making, the spoils of the chase having furnished us with plenty of leather, with which I covered light frames of wood, using a hairy moss or lichen for stuffing, and ere long the animals were equipped with saddles, stirrups, bridles, yokes, and collars, to the very great satisfaction of their youthful riders and drivers. This occupation was followed by a great deal of work connected with the annual return of the herring shoals, which now took place, to them succeeding, as on former occasions, shoals of other fish and many seals. More than ever aware of the value of all these, we did not fail to make good use of our opportunities and captured large numbers. The boys were getting anxious for another shooting expedition, But before undertaking that I wished to do some basket-making, as sacks were beginning to fail us, and there was constant demand for baskets in which to carry and keep our roots and fruits. Our first attempts were clumsy enough, but, as usual, perseverance was rewarded, and we produced a good supply of all sorts and sizes. One very large basket I furnished with openings through which to pass a strong stick, so that it might, when heavily laden, be carried by two persons. No sooner did the children see the force of this idea than they got a bamboo and, popping little fronts into the basket, carried him about in triumph. This amusement suggested a fresh notion to Fritz. "'Oh, father!' cried he, "'don't you think we might make something like this for mother, and carry her much more comfortably than jolting along in the cart?' The boys shouted with glee at the proposal, and though their mother thought the plan feasible enough, she confessed that she did not much like the thoughts of sitting in the middle of a basket, and just looking out now and then over the rim. However, I assured her it should be a well-shaped, comfortable sedan-chair, or litter, and the next question was how it should be carried, since the boys could not play the part of Indian palanquin-bearers, either with safety to their mother, or with any pleasure to themselves. "'The bull and the buffalo!' cried Jack, "'Why not use them for it? Let's go and try them now.' Off ran the boys, and in a short time the basket was securely hung between storm and grumble. Fritz and Jack sprang into their saddles, and Ernest very gingerly deposited himself in the cradle, as friends called it. They set forth at a most sober pace, the animals, who were perfectly docile, appearing only a little surprised at the new arrangement.' "'Oh, it is so pleasant, mother, it is a delightful motion,' cried Ernest, as they passed us. "'It swings and rocks really soothingly. Quicker, Fritz, go quicker!' And, the trot pleasing him equally well, the pace gradually quickened, till the animals were going along at a rate which shook and jolted the basket about most fearfully. Ernest called and screamed in vain for a halt. His brothers thought it capital fun to shake up the professor, and made the circuit of the level ground near Rockburg, finally pulling up in front of us, like performers stopping to receive the applause of spectators. It was impossible to help laughing, the scene was so ridiculous, but Ernest was very angry with his brothers. His reproaches provoked high words in reply, and a quarrel was imminent, but I interfered, and showed them how easily a joke, carried too far, would lead to disputes and bad feeling." urging them to avoid on all occasions any breach of the good fellowship and brotherly love, which was the mainstay of our strength and happiness. Good humour was soon restored, Ernest himself helped to unharness the beasts, and got some handfuls of salt and barley to reward their exertions, saying that they must have some more palanquin practice another day. End of chapter 11, part 1 Read by Kara Schallenberg on July twenty-first, two 2009 in San Diego, California.